It's time once again for another episode of All That's Jazz, the podcast that explores everything in the world of jazz, including artist profiles, the next generation, educators, festivals, producers, venues, photographers, media, and a whole lot more. And here now is your host, Alan Scott. Hello and welcome to another episode of All That's Jazz. Our guest is Elaine Hayes, a jazz historian, writer, and editor. Elaine, thanks for joining us. It's very nice to be here. It's a pleasure to uh, speak with somebody who has the background that you do in terms of being a jazz historian and a writer and someone who is connected by way of the written word in many respects. So with that, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. When did you get influenced by the music called jazz? Yeah, well, I need to start off by saying that I was, I feel like I was a a latecomer to jazz. I came from a family that was very artistic and very musical, but it was definitely an emphasis on classical music. I had an immigrant German grandmother and my mom was all in about symphony classical music. So I started off by playing piano and viola and I went off to college and I was studying piano and eventually music history and hadn't really, I didn't know anything about jazz. In fact, my musical worldview was really quite narrow until um, I was you my probably my junior or senior year. I had a roommate who was also a music major, but her listening, she listened more widely and broadly than I did. And she started playing Sarah Vaughan. And I was like, wow, that's pretty neat. You know, what is this? And I knew nothing about her, but I instantly realized that I was really just drawn to her voice like so many other people are. I mean, the range, the tone, her sense of time and rhythm. And as a classical music, I was just fascinated with her ability to kind of go with the flow. I think one of the first albums that I heard was Live at Mr. Kelly's, where there's a lot of clinking noises in the background. You can hear the audience. You can hear a speaker fall over. Um, And I remember listening to her rendition of How High is the Moon and her saying, well, I don't know the words of the song, but I'm going to sing it anyway. Then she goes off on this huge riff, which is really, in hindsight, I understand now, was a tribute to Ella Fitzgerald. And it was the way that she always sang that song during the 50s. But at the time, I was just fascinated with a person who could presumably forget the lyrics of the song and keep on going and sound amazing while doing it. Um, As a classical musician who was really tied to a musical score, that fascinated me. So I just kept on listening. I gradually, you know, put in some other musicians. And this was just something I did on the side. It's just kind of like my leisure listening. I went off to graduate school in music history and I kept on studying classical music because that's what music history programs did at that time. But in my third year of music, of my musicology program, I had a seminar on women in jazz. And really it was at that moment where I started becoming a little bit more about ser- serious about Saravon and realizing that I could meld these interests that I had in my kind of private musical life with what I actually was studying. And that seminar was really pivotal in a number of different ways. First of all, it was the first class I took as a graduate student that was explicitly about women. It was the first class I took that wasn't only about classical music, because at that time, jazz, the musicology world was just starting to think about, hey, we can, st- we can study jazz too. This was the late 90s. And also this particular professor, Carol Moeller, who became one of my important advisors and mentors, she also took us up to a jazz archive. I was in graduate school in Philadelphia, and we went up to Newark to the Institute of Jazz Studies. And it was the first time that a professor had actually also taken us to an archive. And in addition to me realizing, wow, this Sarah Vaughn thing, I could really do something interesting with this. 
at that moment, I started to realize that I really love spending time in archives and dealing with primary source material. So it all kind of snowballed from there. I ended up writing a seminar on Saravon, and that became a dissertation on Saravon. And in that process of kind of becoming intellectually interested in Saravon, of course, listening to a lot more music, I just started to learn a lot about jazz. But it also really just opened up my worldview in general. I went from being this person who really valued, was had these very highbrow listening tastes to someone who not only was interested in jazz, but also started listening to more pop music and R&B and world music. It just really opened up my world musically. And it's, you know, so this started with Sarah Vaughan. And then it also opened up my world intellectually. I had to start thinking more about African-American history and cultural studies and feminism. So I realized that most people don't have this kind of experience where they listen to a Saravon recording and then they go off and write a book. But time and again, while researching this book, I came to realize that Saravon had kind of had this crossover moment, kind of world opening moment, introduction to jazz for a lot of people as well. So when you finished college and you had originally been a musician at one point in your life, why did you not continue playing music as opposed to maybe writing about it or teaching it? Well, that's an excellent question. And it was a combination of factors. As an undergraduate um, who was studying primarily piano, but I was also a violist, I started having a bunch of repetitive performance injuries. So I wasn't physically able to play anymore. But I was also kind of a nerdy kid, to be honest with you. I was a very book-centered, kind of studious kid. And really, I came to realize that, aside from not physically being able to play, that I was a person who really enjoyed studying and reading and thinking about music. I realized that became, a, in many ways, a better match for me. So it kind of went from there, me going on to graduate school and then getting a PhD. And then after that, I actually didn't go into academia. I took some time off. I went and worked normal, everyday jobs. And about, I would say, four or five years after finishing graduate school, I was like, hey, I'm still kind of interested in that Sarah Vaughan stuff. And I'd always assume someone else would write a biography of Sarah Vaughan, given her position and her status in the jazz world. And given that there were a bunch of books about Ella Fitzgerald, a bunch of books about Billie Holiday. So I always assumed someone else would write a biography or her story. But then I came back to it a number of years later and realized, well, maybe I should try to do that. So then I began the process of thinking about, well, how do you go about taking a dissertation, something that is inherently very academic, very theoretical, very technical, and written in a way that is not always accessible? And what do I need to do to transform that into something that mainstream fans and readers and listeners would want to actually read. And hence the book that uh, you eventually uh, wrote, uh, Queen of Bebop, The Musical Lives of Sarah Vaughan. Yep. Yep. Many years later. Elaine, it sounds like you and I had a similar accidental experience or influence by way of Sarah Vaughan to get us involved in jazz because when I was younger, my mother took in a young lady who was struggling and had some problems and wanted to give her a chance to regroup and get back on the right track. And she lived with us for a few months. And during that period of time, she happened to be a huge fan of Sarah Vaughan. And every single day, every waking day, this young lady was with us. She played Sarah Vaughan. And I remember my father coming in one day and he goes, is that all she plays? Doesn't she have any other albums? <laughs> but you could see the love and adoration. More importantly, the, the inspiration that Sarah had when people heard her for the very first time. 
Yeah, I think her voice was just had that kind of effect on people where aside from it being just a magnificent voice and the things that she could do with it and the, the pure quality of the tone and her range, she really had a skill for creating these intimate connections with her listeners where you felt like she was speaking directly to you. I think back to my first exposures to Sarah Vaughn as that young college student who was just trying to figure out her way in the world. You know, when I listened to Sarah Vaughn, I heard someone who was strong and independent, obviously very capable and completely in charge of the ensemble that she was working with, the room, the audience that she was working with. And for me as a young person, just trying to figure out, well, who am I? What do I want to be? I knew that I wanted to be that kind of person. And so by listening to her, I felt, you know, oddly enough, even though decades separated us, and I'm a white woman from who is from the Midwest. So understanding that there were so many differences between our lived experiences, I felt like she was speaking to me that we had these common human experiences together. So what I wanted to ask you was about the title of the book. It's <laughs> Queen of Bebop, The Musical Lives of Sarah Vaughan. Why plural lives? Well, because I think Sarah Vaughn was musically always uh, reinventing herself. Um, as a kid in the 40s, she really was at the beginning of bebop. She was part of the bands with Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie. Um, she was at the beginning of bebop, and she's often associated with that. And she really was the voice of bebop. However, she was one of those performers who never wanted to be contained or defined or pigeonholed, she would often say, you know, I'm not a jazz singer, I'm a singer, or I'm not a blues singer, I'm a singer. So she was constantly evolving throughout her career. So even though she started off with bebop, she had other periods where she did kind of pop music. She did later in her career, she sang with a lot of symphony orchestras. She did a lot of Brazilian music. She did spirit, she would sing religious music. So she's one of those people constantly evolving and changing. And I didn't feel like there was only one musical life. There were many. Well, and that makes sense too, because she has, uh, as you said, evolved uh, through the years uh, that she was alive and active uh, within the music itself. And there were transformations, if you will. And you could see it. For example, you know, she was very strong to begin with, had a mind and a will of her own. That's why she even had the name Sassy attached <laughs> to her. What did yes. you find in your research about uh, the naming Sassy? It's my understanding that it's a name that I believe pianist John Malachi gave her when they were working together. I believe it was in the Billy Eckstein's uh, big band, and that is often attributed as being one of the first bebop big bands. So lots of times I think we as... A lay audience often thinks sassy. That is uh, purely about her demeanor and her temperament. But she was always uh, quick to say, "Well, you know, they named me sassy because of my harmonic language, and the you know the, my adventurous harmonic language, and the way that she was just willing to kind of go places that a lot of other musicians would not go." So for her, it was a reflection on her musical um, style and prowess. Well, I also think that it uh, reflected her command not only of what she was doing, but of herself. And even at that tender young age, back in 1947, when she had that historic town hall performance that kind of kicked things off for her, 
she was even strong with the orchestra and when they uh, started uh, launching into one of the songs she said to the pianist slower 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 kind of thing yeah. and she was the boss if you will and she had it in her mind as to how that music would progress and how it would emanate through her singing yeah there's no doubt about it even from a very early age you know when she was in her late teens, early 20s. Musically, she was in charge. She knew what she wanted to do. And one of the interesting things about this is that when you start looking at pictures of her or video videos of her as a young person, she was a tiny person. And she had a habit of speaking in a very kind of high-pitched, almost girlish voice that made her sound very young. So there could be this disjunct between what how she appeared, like, ah, oh, this is just a kid over here, and then when she would step on stage and start singing this mastery, this command, this presence that would overtake her, I've always been fascinated by that kind of juxtaposition of these two different women almost. But yeah, there's no doubt about it. And the musicians who worked with her have often said just the command that she had of her voice, of the ensemble, what she wanted to do with it was unparalleled. Well, and that's what made her the singer, the vocalist uh, that she uh, ended up being uh, through her career because she had a poise and a depth to her. And even from the young age, she was very mature and approached it. She didn't, she didn't look like physically uh, uh, the way she sang. She sang like she had a, an old jazz soul uh, within her, and, and that seemed to emanate uh, whenever she would uh, sing. Yes, very true. I agree. I am just, as you were t talking about that, I was reminded of um, kind of reminiscences about her Apollo theater debut. So her big break was in um, 1943. She went to the Apollo theater in Harlem and did their, am their famed amateur night, which is one of these things where um, there are 1,500 or so people in the audience, and it's an it's known to be this incredibly boisterous, really tough audience. And she went out on stage, and you know, this little slip of a girl, as they would describe her, and just blew them away. Um, she sang with a poise and a mastery that defied her years, and that was certainly true earlier on. And then, as her as she um, matured. And you know, kind of came into her own. You could see that you know, in the 40s and the 50s, she's one of the guys. She's part of the band, and she was always that way. But when I started talking to musicians that worked with her in the 60s, for example, that's when, she, as she started to get a little bit older, she was approaching her 40s. She started working with much younger musicians, and I had lovely conversations with musicians who worked with her in the 60s, who were young in their 20s at the time, and this was one of their first big gigs. And the way that she would mentor them and kind of create the space that was safe for them to create and explore and grow as musicians. It's just fascinating. Well, she not only influenced uh, other vocalists, but she also influenced a lot of instrumentalists as well. Oh, yes, of course. And I, I think that's something that kind of gets lost because uh, a lot of times women in the band that are vocalists are sort of downplayed. Uh, they're, they're sort of... Uh, dismissed in some ways uh, by musicians sometimes, but with her, it was totally the opposite. In fact, she influenced not only the way they played, but the way they heard their own music. Exactly. You bring up an important point about 
often female musicians really are, it's hard for them to be heard. And the assumption is that, oh, that's just the chick singer. She doesn't know what she's doing. She's not very good musically. And it's really hard for, I think, for a lot of women to kind of find their place in the jazz world and find a way to thrive. And Sarah Vaughn, she was one of those people who was capable of doing that. Well, and I think it set the path for a lot of uh, women to follow as well through the years. Uh, and I'm sure in, in maybe even talking a little bit about uh, the role of women in jazz, it, it's been a struggle. Uh, would you not characterize it as such? Oh, of course. <laughs> yeah, I think it's very hard. Like I uh, was alluding to kind of the basic stereotype is that uh, women can't, they can't play. They lack the intellect to be creative, improvising musicians. People would talk about girl big bands, like the, the instrumentalists in those bands. They would often um, say, well, they're just not, they don't have the fortitude or the strength to play a tuba or, you know, a big instrument. They didn't look pretty when they played these instruments. Um, there's been a tendency to find out ways to say that women just aren't good enough. And often in these contexts, good enough means being just like a man. And in the process of doing that, not only is that demoralizing, extremely difficult for the women in those situations, the larger process is that we start to write jazz histories that basically don't include women and don't include the accomplishments of female performers or we don't look, I'm just thinking about this as a historian, we often don't look at the the individual subjectivity or the agency of female performers in the same way that we do male performers, because we've had a tendency to say, well, it's okay not to include them in jazz histories because they're just not good enough. Well, historically, the majority of well-known women performers in jazz have been singers. Yeah. Well, that is definitely one of the domains that has been open to women to um, express themselves in jazz. But then there's kind of like a double-edged sword there in that often vocalists aren't viewed with the same kind of respect as instrumentalists. Vocalists have often been placed in kind of like a second-class position and often aren't considered at the same as peers of the instrumentalists in the band. And that's unfortunate as well. I remember talking to Diane Reeves and her saying basically that, well, you know, I'm a vocalist, but my instrument is just inside of my body. That, you know, I'm thinking about these things, I'm a musician, but I just happen to create the music with my, with my voice and my body. Well, and that's something that is often overlooked uh, with uh, performers uh, in the jazz world or musically anywhere, uh, that the, the voice is actually an instrument. Oh, yes, of course. It's, it's probably one of our first instruments. I was talking uh, with our producer and sound engineer, Mick, uh, recently, and we were talking about how after doing an interview with a uh, saxophonist, uh, namely Wayne Escoffrey, uh, who is a Grammy Award-winning uh, tenor sax uh, player, he started out as a vocalist in a choir, but uh, what Mick had pointed out was that oftentimes when a lot of sax players would perform, they're actually bringing the vocalist out and there would be vocal sounds emanating through the saxophone itself, and then by way of the uh, the reed and projection of the music that they were playing. Yeah, you're 100% right there. Lots of times, even though vocalists are in this odd category of often being kind of 
overlooked or their contributions not being valued as much. So many instrumentalists, when they're especially when they're doing their more lyrical, melodic work, really try to use the human voice in the way that someone might sing to craft their musical lines. Would it be safe to say, since you've studied uh, women in uh, jazz history, that some musicians uh, even believe that certain instruments are more suited to men rather than women? Oh gosh, that's a hard question. I do think there have been historical traditions or cultural traditions where the voice and the piano have definitely been instruments that have been perceived as being suitable for young women to perform. Of course, those are cultural traditions or cultural constructs. And of course, we know that women are capable of playing all instruments. <laughs> Absolutely. There's no question about it. it yeah. Recently, I read a publication called The Conversation, which comes from Australia. And they were talking about this topic of how some musicians believe that certain instruments are more suited to men and women. And they said in this article that drums, trombone, and trumpet are seen as masculine, while the flute, the clarinet, and the violin was feminine. Is that something uh, that you would characterize as being true or not? Oh, no. I mean, I think the important thing to remember here is that these perceptions of what are appropriate instruments for men or for women are, you know, what I would say in, you know, academic speak is a cultural construct. It's something that um, society has kind of dictated or decided. And it's not necessarily true. It's just a set of values that people have decided to perpetuate. And, you know, of course, we can always point to excellent musicians who play, like uh, female musicians who play the drums. I think of Terry Lynn Carrington, for example. There are plenty of examples that can be used as a counter to, to, to that kind of argument. Where do you think the place of a woman has evolved to in today's music? Oh, gosh, that's a hard question. I feel like there's certainly more women on the scene, but I still, it's my impression that it's still very difficult for them to find places where they feel like they can truly creatively express themselves. There's no doubt about it. There needs, there should be more women playing jazz if they, if that's what they choose and want to do. As you pointed out, there are certainly uh, many, many women in jazz today and even through the years who were not only experts at uh, the instrument that they played, but they are also legendary in so many ways. Uh, everything from piano, like Marion McPartland, on the drums, as we said, with Sherry Miracle. And then you, you've got uh, people today uh, that are, are, are just uh, total standouts. Uh, and Esperanza Spalding uh, on, uh, on bass. Uh, there, there are so many women today that are just absolutely incredible. Yeah, that's very true. You know, thinking of this with my historian's cap on there and going back to the way that thinking about, you know, the way that history is written and the way that we tell stories, I feel like it's really wonderful that there are so many more women coming to the foreground and we should acknowledge their accomplishments and we should celebrate them. But at the same time, we don't want to inadvertently um, say, well, you know, we have more women jazz musicians and we're celebrating them that use that as a, as a, as kind of a, not excuse isn't quite the right word, but as a reason to say, well, we have enough now. We don't need to work on it anymore. 
you know, like we can celebrate these exceptional women who are doing amazing things and say, okay, we're good now. We need to always remember that we should be educating, you know, young, young kids to be doing jazz, that even though we have a couple exceptional figures, the, the work of combating sexism in jazz or gender inequality is not, is certainly not done. Let me ask you, with respect to jazz as it is today, how do you think the pandemic is going to affect <laughs> this music? Yeah, I think it's it's hard. I personally am saddened every time I hear about a prominent jazz musician passing away. Well, first, I feel I think about the human tragedy of it and the toll on the families and the communities. But I also, as a historian, I'm I feel I. Th- think about all of the traditions and all the knowledge that is lost with each one of these musicians who passes. From the perspective of performances, there's no doubt about it. Things are changing and shifting and it's going to be, I think it's going to be tough because jazz musicians are effectively gig employees. And when you don't have a gig, you're, it's, it's a hard, hard situation. Well, and that's uh, very appropriately said because uh, performance does drive a lot of uh, what happens and the way that people not only experience but enjoy jazz or other forms of music without having that concert, the club date, yes. the festival, uh, it, it's tough. And trying to do this virtually while it has been done uh, through this period of pandemic uh, quite well it's still not the same as as being in the presence of those uh, musicians. Yeah, I think you're right there. I'm in Seattle, and we have a wonderful uh, organization here called Earshot Jazz that really supports um, the Seattle jazz scene, and they do an enormous amount of work with educational opportunities, but also they produce a lot of concerts. And one of the things they've been doing during the pandemic is doing weekly um, live streamed concerts where they choose a local group and in partnership with a local venue, they put on a concert and you and then they video stream it. And you see all the musicians socially distanced. For me, it's been wonderful listening to them. I just, it, it's a reminder of, wow, you know, I was really missing this connection and hearing live music. Um, so in that sense, it's wonderful. And then I listen to them with my son, who's too young to go to clubs. And he's like, wow, this is really great music. So I'm enjoying that the ability to listen to some music during this hard time and have exposed my son to it. But I'm also reminded what exactly what you're talking about, the importance of the audience interaction with the band. So much of that experience of going to a concert or going to a club is hearing the audience around you respond to the musicians and what they're doing. And I know that musicians, speaking to some of my musician friends, they're saying that, you know, not being able to actually just play with their their fellow musicians, that has been very difficult for them as well because, you know, they don't have the creative outlet. It's a social interaction that I think a lot of non-musicians can't understand. So not having that live component in there, it's such a vital part of the way that we experience and think about music. It's part of what creates the energy and the very visceral part of the experience of uh, going to a concert and hearing wonderful music. And that is exactly what it's all about. Uh, And not only is it something that's good for the musicians uh, and the people that are listening at the time, but also maybe even for a future generation to keep this music called jazz alive and thriving and create that legacy that uh, moves the music forward. Exactly. So 
at this point, we, we know there may be a new normal for jazz uh, in the future. Uh, but what about uh, for Elaine Hayes? What uh, sort of things are coming up in your future? Well, at the moment, I am at home with my family. And I'm doing a lot of work making sure my son is okay. Um, but I'm also able to squeeze in a little bit of time to do my own research and thinking. And, you know, I'm just looking for new book ideas, um, what I'm going to think and work on next. Right now, I've been thinking a lot about music as a form of social protest, in particular, the voice and singing as social protest. Um, one of the things I always really enjoyed about my work with Sarah Vaughn was this idea that by singing and using her voice, she was able to um, create a world where she felt free, like she had that this was her opportunity to express herself. And I feel like that is true of many vocalists. And I'm just thinking and working on ideas of kind of developing that kind of idea uh, more, the way that the voice can help you shape your world and grow as a person. Well, and music can be not just uh, entertainment, but it could also be a form of activism. It, it could be a form yeah. of delivering a message. Exactly, exactly. And that's one of the things I've been thinking about right now are the kind of the protest songs of the civil rights movement, the congregational singing, the freedom songs that activists would use and what that meant for them. And, uh, and I think that's uh, something that maybe all of us could uh, be a little more attuned to for the future. Would that be a fair question? Oh, yeah, for sure. I'm, you know, given my background as a historian who thinks about music, I always think of music as something that does cultural work, that it's, as you're saying, it's more than uh, something beautiful that we can listen to and enjoy in that way. It's always, music is always telling us something about our society and the times that we live in and the subjectivities of the people performing it and also uh, something about the audiences who choose to listen to it. It sounds uh, to me like I would like to not only uh, continue finding things written by Elaine Hayes, but also uh, see what it is uh, about uh, this music uh, that touches us in so many different ways. Uh, and Elaine, I thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks for reaching out. So how could people get a hold of you or would like to learn more about Elaine Hayes? Oh, that's a very good question. Well, um, I have a website. It's www.elainemhayes.com. And there's a little bit of info about me there and um, some email links. So there are, people are always welcome to reach out. And when I do get uh, emails from readers, it's really a very gratifying experience for me. I love hearing from them. And we look forward to uh, maybe some further writings from you once you've set that path for yourself and where you want to go with uh, your next publication. We will be watching for it. Oh, thank you very much. Elaine, uh, thank you and have a, uh, a safe and healthy experience uh, for you and your family and keep swinging. I will. You too. Thanks for listening to this episode of All That's Jazz with jazz historian, writer, and editor, Elaine Hayes. Our thanks to Ben Sidron for our theme song, Mr. P's Shuffle. To learn more about this podcast and to offer us your feedback, please visit our website, allthatsjazz.net.